taste of his own medicine. Um, or more seriously, the idea that as you, sh- as you sow, so you shall reap. Yeah, and I'm sure you can think of many others besides that kind of carry on the same idea. I think it, they all reflect, and the, and the fact that there are so many of them reflects the, the simple fact that we, we, we want to see things get back to their right order, don't we? I actually think, as I was watching the news this week, it struck me just how our evening news bulletin shows just how important that is to us as Aussies. I find it fascinating how much of our evening news is taken up with stories that in one way or another relate to a theme of justice. It could be the report on the latest public figure who's fallen from grace, there have been far too many of them, uh, or, or the financial rip-off from some dodgy operator. And then you think, you know, why is it that we need another update on that obscure murder trial that has no relevance to me. I think actually our TV news, it's a mirror on Australian society that shows our longing for justice. We want to see things resolved back the way they should be. The innocent is vindicated, the perpetrator is declared guilty, they serve the penalty, there's compensation paid. And it's not just Aussies. If we think about that globally, that one theme is one of the big themes of global religion. Even those who are non-religious but spiritual, an increasing category according to the Australian census, even those who are non-religious generally share a deep conviction that there is some kind of order to the universe so that there's a connection between cause and effect, your actions and their consequences and things should be set right. If we're looking at that global scale, for billions of people around the world, they have a word for it, karma. That though it might take a a long time, even many lifetimes, justice will be done. It, It will all be turned around in the end. It's a common human longing. And I think that's part of the appeal of the story of Esther as we make our way through it because it's ultimately, it is all about justice being done. It's about the reversal of fortunes where the the powerful oppressor Haman is is brought to justice and the innocent people of God are saved. And so it's a great story that resonates with that longing that we have for justice. And we see it happen through a series of pretty amazing swaps. We're about to have a look at uh, the first one that we've just read right now. Uh, As we think today, uh, this week, about swapping places, well, the first one is is what we've just read with Yashi um, about the swap for the king, so the man the king delights to honour. You see, to recap what we've just read very briefly, we've read about Haman. Uh, Haman, who's been basking in his own glory, right? In his own wealth, in his many sons, the honours bestowed him by the king. You might remember he's been elevated to the kind of the, the prime minister of the, the empire, the second most uh, powerful person under the king. And then to cap it all off, he's the only man that Queen Esther has invited to dinner. I mean, what prestige, what glory, what a man. And meanwhile, the scene sort of then breaks to King Xerxes that night, can't get to sleep, and he turns to the ancient royal cure for insomnia uh, and he has the most boring book in the whole palace read to him to try and get him back to sleep, the record of his reign. But then within it, he discovers that, oh yes, that's right, there was that assassination attempt that this guy Mordecai uncovered. But what an injustice. He's never been honoured for that. He's never been recognised. And then in the first of our delightful ironies, who is right there on hand to help out? Who's in the court? It's none other than Haman himself. 
But did you notice why he was actually there? Chapter 6, verse 4, he was there to speak to the king about sticking Mordecai up on this pole that he's erected in his front yard. And of course, we've just read about how that unfolds, this swap that takes place with wonderfully sweet irony. Because in his arrogance, Haman has walked in and he's thought, the king wants to honour someone, that surely must be me, who else could there be? And so he sets out this wonderful uh, way of glorifying himself only to be humiliated that he actually has to give the glory to his enemy. It's the swap of the proud brought down, the humble lifted up and buried right in the middle of that scene is this wonderful reminder of God's hidden hand that Haman would be in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. Although, let's be honest, Haman probably thought he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, didn't he? But that's our first swap. Well, the second swap, the second swap is like it. However, as a, as a friend uh, sitting with us here observed this week, it now becomes a high-stakes game. Good pun, Mike C. Fang. It becomes a high-stakes game because if we read on in chapter 7, well, we read that Esther shows just how incredibly shrewd she is. She's prepared to ask the king to save her people, but she's engineered not one but two banquets uh, where really he's not going to have any choice but to grant her request. And Haman... He is not going to have any chance to escape. He is about to discover that his grudge against Mordecai actually puts him offside of the mighty King Xerxes because, unbeknownst to Haman, his genocide against the Jews will include Queen Esther, who herself is a Jew. And so finally, in chapter 7, uh, verse 3, um, Esther makes her request of King Xerxes If I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we'd merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? the man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. And so the hammer comes down on on Haman's plot for genocide. It was a plot that Xerxes had just kind of very happily signed off on because apparently he doesn't care about minority groups in in his empire. But now it's got much more personal because now... It will actually take the Queen's own life. Now it's become treason. And Xerxes is outraged by this. And you can read chapter 7 yourself if you want to see the juicy details. Um, But the the swap is pointed, another pun. Because when Xerxes is told that Haman has this dirty great pole, 23 metre pole in his front yard ready for Mordecai, Xerxes decides that that is an appropriate penalty for Haman's terrible plan. Now, what do we do with all of this people being impaled on poles? (laughs) I mean, most of us sit uncomfortably uh, with the death penalty and I hope that we're feeling uncomfortable with this repeated mention of people being impaled on poles. It's pretty gruesome, to say the least. But if we grant that that's the thought world of that time and that place and that culture, that was the way that they did things, well, I think we can see the justice of it, right? 
that Mordecai has a taste of his own medicine, sorry, Haman has a taste of his own medicine, that he suffers the just penalty for his treason and he suffers it through the very means that he had plotted for his enemy Mordecai, the innocent Mordecai, impaled on the pole of his own construction. As the saying says, he has indeed reaped what he sowed. And so the crowd cheers and God's been at work behind the scenes, he's punished evil Haman, he's vindicated faithful Mordecai, he's sustained Esther in her bravery and justice is done. And it is indeed a wonderful story of the faithfulness of God, of his work behind the scenes of history to to keep his promises, to, to guard and to care for his people. And it's one of the many stories in the Bible that just contributes to the picture that we have of the character of God, that he doesn't look on at people in the way that the world does. He didn't think more highly of Haman because he was honoured in the world's eyes. Now, God humbles the proud, he lifts up the lowly. As the Bible fills out the story and our picture of God, that is the way of God. He's a God of justice and faithfulness, who has the wisdom and the power to see it through. And so Esther is indeed a wonderful encouragement to trust Him and to act boldly as we trust Him. And yet as we read this story and these, these amazing swaps and the justice that's been done, it should actually point us forward to a very confronting question. What if you're the guilty one? I mean, we read a story like this and we so easily, we gravitate towards the heroes of the story. We read ourselves in as though we're Mordecai and, and Esther and, and that God owes it to us to come through on our behalf. I, I think that's a part of the reason why our news bulletins have so many stories about the bad things that bad people do because we all want to maintain the story that we are the innocent party longing for justice. And in so many ways, well, the book of Esther actually raises a pretty challenging prospect of of us facing up to what we really deserve. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to take a straw poll here and see whether any of you have plotted genocide like uh, like Haman did, or maybe that you've, you know, thought in your mind about stringing up that annoying guy at work, sticking him on a pole in your front yard, Probably, probably not the sort of thing that you're thinking through. But I wonder if we should be challenged not to assume that we think that we are the man the king delights to honour, right? You run with that metaphor. Because that was at the very core of Haman's problem, wasn't it? That basic assumption. Well, friends, that's why we read um, from Colossians chapter 2, because that's where we see the great swap, Christ in our place. This is the swap that we so desperately need. And I think it's actually the picture that Esther is pushing us towards, pointing us forwards to... Um, Last week, if you were here, you'll remember we saw this little way of just reminding us that as we read the Old Testament, the book of Esther, we we don't draw a direct line to us and kind of read ourselves into the story. We need to see how this points us to Jesus and then allow Esther to inform our understanding of, of who Jesus is, uh, how He fulfills where this story is headed. He help, this story helps us to know Him better. So to do that first, in a simple, really profound way, Esther helps us to understand the, the deep generosity of Jesus. 
You see, Esther, she boldly identified with God's people in order to save them, which points forward to Jesus, who far more generously humbled himself as the Son of God to identify with us, to become one of us, to bring about our ultimate salvation. In the same way, Mordecai points forward to Jesus too. Mordecai, the faithful man of God who's acted with integrity and despite his good deeds, well, he's gone unrecognised but then vindicated and honoured, not just by Haman and Xerxes, but ultimately by God himself. I think as God engineers the circumstances so that Mordecai receives his due honour, we see that that is God's purpose, to honour this faithful man of God. And so Mordecai anticipates Jesus. But even more, it actually helps us to understand the profound humility of Jesus as he submitted himself to the injustice of a criminal's death trusting that he would then be glorified by God, his Father, who would raise him from the dead to his rightful position of glory. And so the great reversals of Esther and Mordecai, they're really pointing us forward to Jesus. And the challenge for us to reflect on is that if we have any hope of being included in that, in that reversal, in that hope, in that justice, then we must choose to be included in him. In Jesus. That's why we read from Colossians chapter 2. You see, this passage is really jarringly honest about its, our situation. It sets the scene, to begin with, using a turn of phrase that feels pretty odd to our modern ears. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. What's going on there with this mention of you know, circumcision? Well, if we remember, circumcision was the sign that God gave Abraham to to mark out, to denote the people who sat under his promises. To remain uncircumcised was was a statement that you were outside the promises of God in the Old Testament. And Paul here is really summarising for the Christians in Colossae. They were all Greek, none of them were circumcised Jews. Uh, Their community sat outside the promises of God. They were dead in their sins because they did not have the promise of God's grace. But that's not just some accident that they'd fallen victim to, born to the wrong group of people at the wrong time or something like that. Verse 14 also clarifies that we were not dead in our sins by accident. They're ours. They are our sins. And they've left us horribly indebted to God. As it says here, justice actually met condemnation. And that's a bit of pill for us to swallow. I think we would rather it wasn't true. But it's actually the claim of the gospel. When Jesus is announced as Lord and Saviour, He is the Lord that we have rejected and the Saviour that we need. And from this perspective, we're far more like Haman, who wanted to take the glory for himself, to glory in his own pride. If justice was done, we would be there with him on the pole. But in Colossians here, look at the swaps that God brings about. We were dead in our sins, but now alive in Christ. We stood condemned by our sin, but He took that away, nailing it to the cross. And friends, in a world that longs for justice, we've got to see how inherently unfair this is. Because in one sense, that swap, that particular swap is not just. 
This is not Haman getting the punishment that he deserves while Mordecai receives the honour that he is due. This is not karma. It's the very opposite. This is the wonder of grace as Jesus climbs onto the cross for us. Verse 14 there puts it really vividly for us. For justice to be done, the charge of sin had to be dealt with. It couldn't just be flushed down the toilet. It had to be dealt with. The record of our sins was nailed to the cross. Those nails that went through Jesus' hands and feet. He didn't just take away our sins and sort of keep it at arm's length. He took it upon himself. He swapped places with us. The innocent Son of God was willingly impaled on the pole that we deserve. And we often sing a song that puts it so helpfully. Behold Him there upon the cross, my sin upon His shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And that's the injustice of it all. That my guilt led to the innocent Son of God suffering. And then that injustice, well, it runs in two directions, doesn't it? As the song continues, His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it's finished. It's unjust in two directions. That He should suffer for my sin, that I should enjoy the relationship with God that that is really only something that He deserves. And Esther points us forward, points us forward to the justice and the faithfulness of God. But it's a justice that we can only escape by His grace. If we will bind ourselves to Jesus, who brings about this swap for us, as He takes our place, that He would step in for you and me. But look at verse 15 with me to see the sweet irony that's embedded in the horror of the cross. And as I've spent time in Esther, this image has come to mind for me again and again. Because it's actually ironic to see that that on the cross, the very place that the devil thought he finally had Jesus beat, well, in fact, on the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. If we chuckle at the irony of Esther, what a profound irony the cross is. You know why the Romans designed crucifixion? You know what crucifixion was actually meant for? I mean, there's lots of different ways you can kill a criminal. It's, it's meant to be a public humiliation, a public demonstration that you don't want to be like this person, you don't want to have anything to do with this person. We're going we're gonna to make it so publicly humiliating that no one would want to relate to him. And I think the reversals of Esther help us to see the very profound irony, the beautiful irony, that the pole upon which the devil thought he had finally impaled the Son of God, that was actually the way that he won. In the end, the cross was turned from a symbol of of defeat to a symbol of victory. Because in giving his life for us, the King, Jesus, took his place on the throne. Christ has won. And that's actually the great swap that we have to cling to. Not reading ourselves in as innocent Mordecai, but hanging on to Jesus and allowing Him to take our place for us. And in our longing for justice, we should, we should fall in thankfulness and wonder 
at the wisdom and the kindness of God, that he would see justice done, the penalty is paid because he is a just God and yet he is the one who justifies us, willingly sending his son who willingly stepped in for us. Justice is done, the penalty is paid, yet we don't get what we deserve, we get what is not rightly ours. And so as we, we're drawing ourselves towards the end of Esther, we've got one more week in it next week because we're going to celebrate it, but at, but at this point, I just want to reflect on how that great swap that Esther is pointing forward to shapes our lives. You know, how does it actually come home in, in day-to-day living? I've been spending quite a bit of time over the last few weeks thinking this through for myself and I just want to share some of the encouragements that I've had, not because this is kind of the complete list, but because I hope they're encouraging to you. Uh, the first thought that I've had has just been really to reflect on, on our sense of self-worth. Uh, we live in an age and a society that is just craving a sense of, of affirmation, we're scrambling for our identity and a sense of dignity. I, I grew up in the 80s when uh, sort of self-esteem was all of the rage, just tell every kid how wonderful they are and, uh, and I gather that the psychologists have now realised that that's borne some pretty unhealthy fruit, the psychologist in the room is nodding his head, yes... But instead of self-esteem, living in light of that great swap means that I know my worth is not grounded in myself, but grounded in Christ. As the Apostle John famously wrote, God so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world in this way. It's not just the world... The Apostle Paul would write this in very personal terms. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who is He? He is the one who loved me and gave Himself for me. The Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. He swapped places with you because He loves you. That's what makes this life worth living, worth living for something much more than just yourself. We have the privilege of living for Him, the one who loved you in this way, to swap places with you. Now, don't get me wrong, that doesn't make me bulletproof to, you know, insults and and, and totally robust in a conflict. (laughs) I am still challenged by my own insecurity, I'm very aware of my flaws. And yet my hope is not grounded in convincing myself that somehow I, I really am better than they think I am. It's in remembering that Christ loved me and He gave Himself for me. So I can live for Him. And I think, as I've reflected, that flows over uh, into, into the second uh, way of, sorry, I've gone too far there, of uh, this reversal impacting on our day-to-day lives, saying no to sin. You see, Paul wrote um, to his uh, deputy leader, um, Titus, which I think I have on screen, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. You see, as I've reflected on, I think it's that swap that Jesus did on my behalf that actually helps me to say no to sin. Knowing that Jesus didn't take my sin away, He took it upon Himself, such that 
you know, at those moments when I'm, I'm pausing and I'm reflecting on my temptation to sin in whatever way it might be, I, I actually try and bring that image to mind of His nail-pierced hands to remember that His grace to me is free, but it wasn't cheap. It cost Him everything. That's the swap that reminds me that it matters to say no to sin. But I think more than just not wanting to sin... It's actually grace that teaches me that I don't have to sin. After all, on the cross, Christ won. He defeated the powers. He triumphed over them, made a public spectacle of them. I want to picture Haman walking down the street saying, this is the man the king delights to honour. That was Jesus robed on the horse, receiving his honour because he has conquered the forces of evil. And so I'm not bound by them. I can say no. I serve Him, not them. And in my experience, it is so much easier to say no to sin when you know that you can. When you know that you don't have to say yes. It's not a foregone conclusion. And of course, His grace, one third and final thought here, His grace in forgiving me actually has really challenged me in thinking through what it means for me to forgive others. I know I could go on, there's, there's loads of different ways that that, that swap that is at the centre of the Gospel, that totally transforms our life. But I think in this last week, I've been thinking over the way it plays out in the area of forgiveness in my own life. It's probably in part because I've been doing some work on our series on prayer for Term 4, which by the way, Matt and I are really looking forward to preaching through. I think it's going to be a really encouraging time together. But we're working through the Lord's Prayer in which Jesus teaches us to pray something very confronting about forgiveness. Jesus taught his disciples to pray and, and this is what he said about forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now we're going to unpack that more in a few weeks' time but let me just say this much today as I've been reflecting on Esther. I think we all know what it's like to have complex relationships, difficult relationships. Is it family? Is it friends? Is it colleagues? When, when words are said or maybe the tone just implies or actions really sting and it is so hard to forgive. It is so easy to bear the grudge. It's so easy to find ourselves not just dwelling on this present hurt, but kind of the catalogue of past faults. But Jesus teaches us that when we ask for forgiveness, we do so praying just as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, he teaches this to to disciples who are forgiven people. They're, They're people who are returning to the mercy of God. We don't earn his forgiveness by showing just how how gracious we are to others. But we can only be his disciples if we are willing to accept his forgiveness and be transformed by it. If you've not done that yet, we actually need to get on your knees and to beg him for that, that that he would take your place, that his grace would be yours, that his honour and glory he might share with you. And so Jesus teaches that this is the daily prayer of someone who knows His grace. It's the prayer of people who have experienced the mercy of God and long to experience it again. But the proof of their sincerity is that they've shown this same mercy to others. 
Because when we know the grace of God shown to us through that great swap, Jesus, Jesus in my place, I am Haman, deserving of the pole. And he's taken it for me. When we grasp that with all sincerity, then it, it overflows, it has to overflow, it can only overflow to a longing to tame our own ungodly passions, holding on to that grudge, and, and to long to live lives that overflow with His grace shown to other people too. And this week, as I've, as I've pondered that prayer, I've been so thankful for just how vivid the book of Esther is, that it gives me an image to, to bring to mind of, of what justice looks like. Mordecai, rightly honoured. Haman, suffering his due penalty. And to thank God for His grace that I've been swapped. To be so thankful that God, God is faithful to His promises. He is a God of justice. He does make it right in the end. But that He gives me the hope of being included in Christ because He took my place. I am so thankful that the gospel is not karma. That I don't get what I am due because God is of grace, that Jesus is in my place, that He chose to take my sin and give me His life. If we remember that truth, it changes everything. Will you pray with me? Our loving Heavenly Father, oh, we thank You so much for Jesus. Oh, we thank You so much for Your grace poured out to us in Him, that You would give up Your greatest treasure, that He would come to willingly take our place, not that anyone took His life from Him, but that He laid it down for us, because He loved us. Father, thank You for the vivid images of Esther that remind us of Your great justice, that point us forward to our glorious Saviour and actually remind us that we so desperately need the greater swap for Him to take our place. And so, Father, if we've ever, never actually bowed the knee and, and, and honoured Him as our King and begged Him for His mercy, which He so freely offers, then perhaps this morning we take this opportunity to do that. And we thank You for Your mercy to us in the Lord Jesus. And Lord, wherever we are at with Him, we pray that You would teach us how this grace totally transforms our life and shows us who we are, loved by You, empowered to live for You. It helps us to know that we can live for You, saying no to sin. And it teaches us that just as You have been merciful to us, so You free us to be merciful to others. Of course, the list goes on, Lord, but we pray that you would keep teaching us your grace, that we might show grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.